morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I made a comment probably six or eight months ago around Brother Joe, and he said you should use that for a sermon title. And so I was thinking about some things this week. Dana and I were talking about some things, and she mentioned a quote that she said I should use for a sermon. And I was in the process of pondering what to preach about this morning, and uh, the title of the message this morning is The Power of the Gospel to Change Our Perspective. And I don't know what you think of when you think of perspective, but our perspective is a big deal. It makes a lot of difference about the way that we approach life. What is a perspective? Well, it's a point of view. It includes what you see, but also your mental assessment of that. It's our information filter. It's how we view life. It's how we think about life. And how we view life, how we think about life, then drives how we live life. And so, perspective is a big deal. So I'm making a big claim with that title. I'm saying that the Gospel has the power to change the way you view life. The way you see things. Every one of us has a perspective about everything. It might be pretty casual, or it might be that something doesn't have value, but even that is a perspective. If you think that something doesn't have value, well, that's your perspective about that thing. We have a perspective about ourselves. Where does, where does our perspective come from? Well, our, our perspective is shaped by a lot of things. It's shaped by our personal experience. It's shaped by our attitudes. It's shaped by the culture around us and our unique observations within that culture. It's shaped by the things we love. And I would say that our perspectives are so rooted in our culture and in our experience that it's impossible for us to have a completely autonomous perspective or independent of those things. So it's impossible for us to just be independently separate from the things that have influenced us, influenced our perspective. Or it isn't possible, another way to say it, it isn't possible for us to just wipe the slate clean and get a totally new perspective, just like that. Or to think that because we have an idea that's different than somebody uh, who is also part of our culture, that we are free from that culture because we have a different perspective about it. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're completely free from our our perspective is completely free. 
our perspective is like this tidy little box in which we have grouped the information that we have accumulated. And maybe I should say that there are things outside that box, but there are things that we've just said, not really that important. I'm just gonna kick that out. That doesn't have a place in my box because it's, it doesn't have enough value to go in my box. <clears throat> well, what happens then when new information arrives? What happens when new ideas show up or we learn something new or we hear about something new? What do we do with that information? Dirk, is my book Case for Christ down there? Thank you. I want to read you a little story from this book. And it kind of gives an illustration about perspective. In the parlance of, of prosecutors, the attempted murder case for J James Dixon was a dead bang winner, open and shut. Even a cursory examination of the evidence was enough to establish that Dixon shot police sergeant Richard Scanlon in the abdomen during a scuffle on Chicago's south side. <clears throat> piece by piece, item by item, witness by witness, the evidence tightened the noose around Dixon's neck. There were fingerprints and a weapon, eyewitnesses and a motive, a wounded cop and a defendant with a, with a history of violence. Now the criminal justice, justice system was poised to trip the trap door that would leave Dixon dangling by the weight of his own guilt. The facts were simple. Sergeant Scanlon had rushed to West 108th place after a neighbor called police to report a man with a gun. Scanlon arrived to find Dixon noisily arguing with his girlfriend through the front door of her house. Her father emerged when he saw Scanlon, figuring it was safe to come outside. Suddenly a fight broke out between Dixon and the father. The sergeant quickly intervened in an attempt to break it up. A shot rang out. Scanlon staggered away, wounded in his midsection. Just then, two other squad cars arrived, screeching to a halt, and officers ran over to restrain Dixon. A 22 caliber gun belonging to Dixon, covered with his fingerprints and with one bullet having been fired, was found nearby where he had apparently flung it after the shooting. The father had been unarmed. Scanlon's revolver remained in its holster. Powder burns on Scanlon's skin showed that he had been shot at extremely close range. Fortunately, his wound wasn't life-threatening, although it was serious enough to earn him a medal for bravery, proudly pinned to his chest by the police superintendent himself. As for Dixon, when the police ran his rap sheet, they found that he had previously been convicted of, a shoot of shooting someone else. Apparently, he had a propensity for violence. And there I sat, almost a year later, taking notes in a nearly deserted Chicago courtroom while Dixon publicly admitted that yes, he was guilty of shooting the 15-year police veteran. On top of the other evidence, the confession clinched it. Criminal court judge Frank McCalla ordered Dixon in prison, then wrapped his gavel to signal that the case was closed. Justice had been served. I slipped my notebook inside the pocket of my sports coat and ambled downstairs toward the press room. At the most, I figured my editor would give me three paragraphs to tell the story in next day's Chicago Tribune. Certainly, that is all it deserved. This wasn't much of a tale, or so I thought. Now, the guy writing the story is, was a journalist for uh, the Chicago Tribune, and this was a case that he was covering as a journalist. The Whisper of an Informant. 
I answered the phone in the press room and recognized the voice right away. It was an informant I had cultivated during the year I had been covering criminal courts building. I could tell he had something hot for me because the bigger the tip, the faster and softer he would talk, and he was whispering a mile a minute. Lee, do you know that Dixon case, he said? Yeah, sure, I replied. Covered it two days ago, pretty routine. Don't be so sure. The word is that a few weeks before the shooting, Sergeant Scanlon was at a party showing off his pin gun. His what? A pin gun. It's a 22 caliber pistol that's made to look like a fountain pen. They're illegal for anyone to carry, including cops. When I told him I didn't see the relevance to, of this, his voice got even more animated. Here's the thing, Dixon didn't shoot Scanlon. Scanlon was wounded when his own pin gun accidentally went off in his shirt pocket. He framed Dixon so that he wouldn't get in trouble for carrying an unauthorized weapon. Don't you see, Dixon is innocent. Impossible, I exp exclaimed. Check out the evidence, came his reply see where it really points. I hung up the phone and dashed up the stairs to the prosecutor's office, pausing briefly to catch my breath before strolling inside. You know the Dixon case, I asked casually, not wanting to tip my hand too early. If you don't mind, I'd like to go over the details once more. Color drained from his face. Uh, I can't talk about it, he stammered. No comment. It turned out that my informant had already passed along his suspicions to the prosecutor's office. Behind the scenes, a grand jury was being convened to reconsider the evidence. Amazingly, unexpectedly, the once airtight case against James Dixon had been, was being reopened. The facts for a new theory. At the same time, I started my own investigation, studying the crime scene, interviewing witnesses, talking with Dixon, and exclaiming the physical evidence. As I thoroughly checked out the case, the strangest thing happened. All the new facts that I uncovered and even the old evidence that once pointed so convincingly toward Dixon's guilt snugly fit the pin gun theory. Witnesses said that before Scallon arrived on the scene, Dixon had been pounding his gun on the door of his girlfriend's house. The gun discharged in a downward direction in the cement of the front porch. There was a chip that was consistent with the bullet's impact. This would account for the bullet that was missing from Dixon's gun. Dixon said, he didn't want to be caught with the gun, so he hid it in some grass across the street before police arrived. I found a witness who corroborated that. This explained why the gun had been found some distance from the shooting scene, even though nobody had seen Dixon throw it. There were powder, burn, there were powder burns concentrated inside, but not above, the left pocket of Scanlon's shirt. The bullet hole was at the bottom of the pocket. Con conclusion, a weapon had somehow discharged in the pocket's interior. Contrary to statements in the police report, the bullet's trajectory had been a downward angle. Below Scallion's shirt pocket was a bloody rip where the bullet had exited before going through some flesh. After going through some flesh. Dixon's rap sheet hadn't told the whole story about him. Although he'd spent three years in prison for an earlier shooting, the appellate court had freed him after determining that he had been wrongly convicted. It turns out that police had concealed a key defense witness and that a prosecution witness had lied. So much for Dixon's record of violent tendencies. Uh, an innocent man is freed. Finally, I put the crucial question to Dixon. If you were innocent, why in the world did you plead guilty? Dixon sighed. It was a plea bargain, he said, referring to the practice in which prosecutors recommend a reduced sentence if a defendant pleads guilty and thus saves everybody time and expense of a trial. They said if I pleaded guilty, they would sentence me to one year in prison. I'd already spent 362 days in jail waiting for my trial. 
All I, had, all I had to do was admit I did it, and I'd go home in a few days. But if I insisted on a trial and the jury found me guilty, well, they'd throw the book at me. They'd give me 20 years for shooting a cop. It wasn't worth the gamble. I wanted to go home. And so, and so I said, you admitted doing something that you didn't do. Dixon nodded. That's right. In the end, Dixon was exonerated, and he later won a lawsuit against the police department. Scanlon was stripped of his medal and indicted by a grand jury pleaded guilty of official misconduct and was fired from the department. As for me, my stories were spliced across the front page. Much more important, I had learned some big lessons as a young reporter. One of the most obvious lessons was that evidence can be aligned to point in more than one direction. For example, there had easily been enough proof to convict Dixon of shooting the sergeant, but the key questions were these. Had the collection of evidence really been thorough and which examination fits best fit the total of the facts. Um, he goes on to say that he tells the story as a he tells the story as a beginning point to illustrate that his perspective as an individual was very similar to this story. He thought about Christ, his thoughts about Christ were taken from a perspective that was not complete. And when he pursued the evidence, it changed his perspective about who Jesus was. And so, what happens when new information comes in? What do we do with it? Do we actually assess it for the value that it has, or do we kick it out and say it doesn't fit in our box? And One of the things that we'll do is we will look at whatever new information comes in. We'll look at it. We'll sift it through our perspective. And this will be our, these will be our tendencies. To throw it out to fit our presuppositions or to throw it out because it threatens our biases or the things we love. Instead of evaluating the new things, new information for what it really is for what it's really worth and you see that so so there could be a point of, of possible thinking that you know maybe if I open myself up too much that you know I'll get a wrong perspective but truth is not that way when you open yourself up to the truth you're opening up yourself up to something that will stand and Brian made a comment about Jesus not in Sunday school about Jesus not dying for the truth. He died for us. And uh, Jesus didn't have to die for the truth because the truth is going to stand. And Jesus knew that the truth would stand. And he was willing to die because he knew the truth would stand. And he was willing to die for us. But I want to say this. That we will not be able to correct our perspective any more than we are willing to die to our past. So any more than we are willing to open up our box, we will not be able to correct our perspective. Any more that we are able to let go of aspects of that box will be the, the limit to our change of perspective. Now I want to think just a little bit about a perspective about life. Maybe you don't see this so much if you're young, but life isn't easy. And maybe you do see that if you're young. We are small. The world is big. 
We'll face difficult circumstances. What is our perspective about those things? And this is really getting more to the heart of the reason why I'm preaching this message. When we face big things, what is our perspective? How do we handle that big thing? Well, it's going to be based on our perspective. Whether the problem is physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, the impact of the difficulty has the potential to affect every aspect of your life. So you might be facing some physical struggle, but that has the potential to affect you spiritually as well. And maybe you're facing some spiritual struggle where that can affect you physically because that's your makeup as a whole is, is all of those things. And so our perspective is important that it be properly aligned in those different areas. The importance of the physical, the importance of the spiritual, and so on. You know, it's really not the area of the problem that defines the outcome. It's the perspective that you have as you face it that defines how you come out with the problem. I want to read three stories from the Bible. The first one is in Exodus 14. You can turn there. For sake of time, I'm going to be skipping some verses as I go along. I'll try to notify you when I do. But Exodus 14, verse 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 2 and 3, then 9 through 14, and then 19 through 22. Actually, I'll start at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they may turn and encamp before Pahirath, between Migdal and the sea, over against Baal Zephon, before it shall be before it ye before it shall ye encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. And then jumping ahead to verse nine. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamping by the sea beside Peharath before Baal Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone? that we may serve the Egyptians, for it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall shew you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And then verse 19. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before the, from before their face and stood behind them, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it was light of night to these, so that 
the one came not near the other all the night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea a dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on the right hand and on their left. And so many of you know the story that they went through the sea on dry land and were saved from the Egyptians as a result of that. So I want to look at three different perspectives here. One of them was the perspective of Pharaoh. So in those first couple of verses, God tells Moses to go this certain way. And the, the word there, Pahiroth, means gorge. And Migdal means mountain. And so they went apparently through this gorge down through the mountains to the edge of the sea. And so Pharaoh was coming behind them. And so his army closed up any opportunity for them to escape. And when he saw them go into that, he said, ha, here's these defenseless people. I've got them. All I've got to do is take my army down in there and capture these people. And I've got my slaves back. So that was his perspective. The children of Israel, they were down in this, in this place and they looked back and they saw the Egyptians coming and there was no way forward. There was no way back. They said, we're done. We're going to all get killed right here. That was their perspective. Moses said, God has a perspective about this situation. And God's perspective is that I'm going to make a way for you out of this situation. He said, stand still and see what God does. And God made a way for them out of that situation. So God had a perspective too. All right, now I'd like to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 17. This is a story about Elisha and his servant and the Syrian army. Starting at verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with the servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians have come down. And the king of Israel sent to that place, which the man of God told him, and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once nor twice. So several times the, the Syrian army came into Israel. The prophet of God told the king of Syria where or told the king of Israel where the Syrians were going to come. He sent soldiers there. They defended the place and each time uh, repelled the Syrians. Continue reading. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was troubled for these things, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not shew me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he was saying, somebody's betraying my plans to the king of Israel because he knows exactly where I'm getting ready to, to make war. In verse 12, And one of his servants saith, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words which thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, 
and I shall send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and going forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. The servant had a perspective, and God had a perspective. The servant had a perspective of a huge army against him, a city that was trapped, people that were trapped, no way out, nowhere to go. God had a perspective. He said, there's a whole host on your side. I can make a way. Now, if you finish reading that story, all the soldiers of the Syrian army were smitten blind. Elisha went down and said, I'll take you to the man you want. He took him to Samaria and took him inside the walls of Samaria and had all the soldiers captured inside the walls of Samaria and then opened their eyes. And they were afraid. And the king said, what shall I do? And Elisha said, give them bread and water and send them home. And uh, so that was the end of that story. But the part that I really want you to catch about that is those horses and chariots of fire were spiritual beings. And God can show us the, the perspective of the spiritual. That's His perspective. He doesn't just see the physical things that are in front of us. He also sees the spiritual. And He's ready there to help us with the spiritual needs that we have. All right, now I'd like to go to John chapter 9. <clears throat> this has always been a really interesting story to me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and then verses 14 to 34. <clears throat> and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Excuse me. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. Then when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. Okay, then moving forward to verse 14. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They said unto the blind man again, What, hast thou, what sayest thou of him? 
that he hath opened thine eyes, he said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means we know seeth but by what means he now seeth, we know not. For who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he would put him out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again called they the man who, that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know not what this... We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that where I was, whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? And they reviled him and said, Thou art, his, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. And the man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, there is not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So, again, several perspectives in the story. We have the disciples' perspective. They looked at this man and they said, Well, this man or his parents must have sinned, and that's why he's blind. And that was their perspective about the situation. Jesus' perspective, God's perspective was, this didn't happen because of sin. This happened because the glory of God was to be revealed by this man, or through this man. We have the Jews' perspective. They looked at, at this miracle and they said, Jesus was a sinner because He didn't keep the Sabbath. The blind man looked at this and his perspective was, how could Jesus be a sinner? It was evidence. It was evident that he was not a sinner because he had this power. And so, the point that I'd like for us to get from this story is that God can make me see. God can give me the vision that I need. God can give me the right vision. You see, God has a perspective, and His perspective is omniscient. That means it's all-knowing and all-seeing. So He sees everything. So when he, looks, when he looks at your life, He sees everything in relation to your life. He sees that difficult experience, or experiences that you're facing. The conclusion of that story there in John, verses 35 through 41. I'd like to go ahead and read that at this point. 
Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had, when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see not, sorry, and they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Now that might sound like a complicated text, but let's think about that box, okay? If we say that our box has everything in it that's important, in and of our own conclusions, we're blind. But if we say that I need God to show me the proper vision and to show me the right perspective about the world, then we can see. And that's what Jesus is saying there. He's telling that Pharisee that the problem is that you think you see already. And so your perspective is blocking what God would like to show you. But the blind man was able to see because his perspective was opened up. He said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? Our perspective will only be as complete as the, as the capacity on which it is anchored. Our perspective will only be as complete as the capacity on which it is anchored. What are you anchoring your perspective in? Are you anchoring your perspective in one who sees and knows it all? Or are you anchoring your perspective on yourself or the things that you have learned? And if our perspective is not anchored on something larger than our problems, we will be overwhelmed by the difficulties we face in life. I'd like to talk just a little bit about a faith perspective. Faith is tied to every person's perspective. Every person out there in the world has a perspective and it is linked to some form of faith. Even the material, the complete materialist has faith. And it, it may be grounded in, you know, simply the fact that they believe that their parents, they believe their parents because they believe that they're their parents because they don't remember being born. Alright? So there are things that we believe and trust in that we never saw or remember or tested or prove. There's things about history that we believe that we never saw, that we never tested. We believe they were real events. But we look at the evidence, we interpret the evidence through our perspective, and then we decide what we're going to believe. We decide what we're going to put our faith in. God doesn't ask us to blindly place our faith on, in Him. He gives us these stories. He gives us these things from the past. This truth about Himself and about His perspective 
so that we can anchor our perspective in Him, so we can place our faith in Him and anchor our perspective there. To trust Him to see what we cannot and give us a proper vision for the future. Trust Him to make a way for the future regardless of how difficult the present may look. Trust Him to have our spiritual good in mind and to be with us in our toughest times. That's what God wants to do for us. Now I'd like to shift just a little bit to the, to the focus of the title. How does God have the power to change our perspective? How does the Gospel have the power to change our perspective? I want to repeat two things that I said earlier. We will not be able to correct our perspective any more than we are willing to die to our past. And the second thing, our perspective will only be as complete as the capacity on which it is anchored. Point number one, how does the Gospel have the power to change our perspective? God entered the world and demonstrated a life lived from His perspective. The world is still resounding from the impact of that life. Jesus came into the world. He was God. And He demonstrated what it means to live a life from God's perspective. The good news is in Jesus. That's the Gospel. The good news is in Jesus. In Him we have the perspective of God. In Him we have something to anchor our perspective. We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. But we can't just choose the parts we like and disregard the rest. Then it will still be our perspective and not His and not God's. See, we just can't take part of Jesus and say this is enough. We have to take all of who He is and what He said. Point number two. The Gospel is a call to die. Jesus asks us to lay down our perspective, our control, our complete life to be His disciple. Death to my perspective frees me to take on a new perspective. The question is, am I willing to lay down my excuses, my biases, my self-protection, and my understanding of life? Are you willing to die? Because it's the only way that we're going to truly have a changed perspective about life. And that's the Gospel. The Gospel calls us to die. If not, my life perspective will never be larger or more accurate than my current faith basis. So whatever I'm basing my faith on will be as, as big as my life perspective can be or is accurate. Number three, when we die to ourselves through faith in Christ, we become partakers of God's divine nature. Then from a new nature of who we are, we look at life from a new perspective, God's perspective. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us a new point of view, and that view is characterized by the fruit of God's Spirit love, joy, and peace. And it aligns itself with the truth. 
Number four, it then becomes our goal to grow in, his divine, in this divine perspective in relation to every aspect of life. Our confidence lies in the secure place we find as children of the one who knows and sees it all. It becomes our goal to expand our understanding of God's perspective. All throughout life, as every, every part of life, everything that we do, everything that we say, everywhere that we go, will be directed and guided by God's perspective, not our own. And we can do that with confidence because in Christ we have intrinsic and eternal value. We have peace in the present. We have purpose in all conditions of life, both opportunity and difficulty. And we have security now and in the future. It gives us the perspective we need to face the difficulties of life with joy because we have a perspective that's anchored in the truth. What are you facing today? Disappointment? Discouragement? A mountain that is impossible to climb? I've used the board enough recently I decided I wasn't going to, but just imagine that you're facing a mountain. A mountain is a big thing. And it is steep. And you look at it and you say, even if I could climb it, I don't want to. I don't have the strength to get up that mountain. But it's there. And it's part of your reality. And we often face things in life that we don't want to deal with. We just assume not. And we don't feel like we have strength to deal with it. But it is part of our reality. Here's the quote Dana mentioned this week. The challenges that are part of our reality. It is our job to do the best we can to follow God and not allow them to become a mental mountain. Because if we have God's perspective, He's going to make a way. He's going to make a way for us through those difficulties. The mountain that we see is too difficult to climb he sees the strength of character we will gain when we reach the other side. God wants to make us into something more than we are today. Something stronger, something more beautiful, something more like Jesus. And the only way we can make these changes if we go to His Word with an openness looking for His perspective. We can't go to the Bible and use it to try to shore up our perspective. We must go to the Bible asking God to show us His perspective and directing our thinking, directing our life. And then that's the way that God is, the Gospel is able to change our perspective.